if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Recently, Ed the Protestant and I had a conversation about what constitutes a good death in Catholicism. You can find that episode in the archives. But that conversation quickly led to the next question. What happens after we die? Well, the clear answer from Scripture, the historic Christian faith, and the apostolic teaching of the Catholic Church is that after we die, we are judged. How are we judged? What if we've lived a generally good life? And does God really judge people in such a way that some people don't pass the test, so to speak? After all, there are plenty of preachers and bumper stickers today that assure us that, in the end, love wins. So, Ed and I sat down again, flipped on the recorder, and talked about what the Catholic Church has to say about judgment after death. Take a listen. And then head over to our website, consideringcatholicism.com. You'll find all the podcast episodes, indexed by topic and grouped into playlists, along with articles and short videos about the Catholic faith. And while you're there, subscribe to our mailing list so that you never miss any new content or news about events or field trips. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, please send me an email. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. Okay, so we agreed we were going to talk today about judgment, something I have mixed feelings about. Do you remember that scene toward the end of the Titanic movie? where Leonardo DiCaprio's character is at the top of the stairs and everyone's, I think he died in the ocean or something. And then he's... Yeah, because he his, couldn't fit on the door with uh, Kate right, Winslet. Right, right, right There's exactly. like this giant door, but she wouldn't let him on it. So right, he right, like right. sunk into the Atlantic. But don't get me started about that. That movie ticked me off. Anyway, um, and everyone's applauding, right? I, and I always have always thought that at the end of my life, like as I'm... I die and I'm in the hospital bed. Yeah, everybody comes. Everybody comes into the room pushing a big cake, mm-hmm. you know. And they're all like, uh, "Hey, you know what? We were just messing with for you." He's a jolly good yeah, fellow. Yeah, yeah. you're fine, Ed. Don't worry about it. We're not mad. Mm-hmm. You didn't really offend. We come on. Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. <clears throat> you know, in the Protestant world, you're fine. Okay, they, I, you accept Jesus as your savior, and I have been. In, in all the churches I've been in, I've been told over and over and over and over and over, you're in. Don't worry about it. You're in. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you, you should try to live, live a good life. Don't, don't be a sinner. Don't, you know, but, but God's got you covered. Jesus' blood has you covered and, and everything's fine. You prayed the sinner's prayer and so you're covered. And I, <clears throat> so I have never 
well, I never worried about being dead. I never, I never worried about it. I thought, well, I'm fine. No, I'm fine. And I know that I, I, I know that I am, but it isn't that simple. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, so I, I look back over my own life and frankly, I'm appalled, you know, it's four o'clock in the morning mm-hmm. stuff, you know, I have every reason to be afraid to stand before God and I have every reason to hope uh, as a Christian. Okay. A, a quick story. I have a friend who's Grandma was dying in the in the hospital, and my friend went up to her and said, and "Grandma, how are you doing?" And she was crying. And she, and th- this this woman's grandma was like a saint. She was you, you know there's you, you can't find a more godly woman. And she said, "Grandma, why are you crying?" And she said, "I have to go and face God." And and she said, "But Grandma, you shouldn't you shouldn't be afraid. I mean, you're like you're the most saintly like person that I know." And she said, "And she said, you have no idea how black my heart is." Mm-hmm. And I thought that woman was in, she was right. You know, mm-hmm. she was right about herself. What, what my friend saw from the outside was not the, you know, this woman understood is mm-hmm. what I guess what I'm trying to say. Uh, so, you know, I, I, the older I get, the, the closer I get to all this. And I think, well, okay, this is important, Ed. Right. Don't be, don't be, uh, don't be passing this off. Um, and we talked a couple of weeks ago about, uh, you know, dying a good death and all that. Mm-hmm. I'm increasingly invested right. in doing that. Uh, but I've been confused about this right. my whole life in the Protestant world. This is just all over the place. I never mm-hmm. get a good, I never get a straight, I never get an answer that satisfies me. If my sins are covered by Jesus' death on the cross, am I still going to answer for them? Am I going to have to, because I can't. I mean, there's no excuse. What I, I'm not going to bring any trophies with me, right? I'm not going right. like to, well, yeah, hey, hey, come on. Hey, well, that's pretty good, you know? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it's a very good idea now to, to forgive all the people who have wronged me because just as much as, as I would like them to answer for what they did, right. I don't want to have to answer. I, I'm willing to just call this a wash. Right. You know what I mean? So um, you said in an earlier podcast that there were, Two judgments, and I want to know more about that. Okay. Uh, what did you call it? the particular? The particular, particular judgment, and the general, and the general judgment. The first one looks the way you described them. The first one looks scarier to me <laughs> than the second one because you know. Right. Um, so, can you unpack for me yeah. what the difference is between what the Catholic Church teaches? Sure. I guess not the difference between Protestant and Catholic, but I right. once you start teaching the Catholic part, I'll know what the difference <laughs> okay. is. Okay. Let's start with what the church teaches. And I think that this, some of what I'm going to say really just is orthodox Christian teaching. And I think that what I'll call orthodox Protestants, in other words, Protestants that sort of affirm the historic Christian faith. C.S. Lewis called mere Christianity or G.K. Chesterton called orthodoxy would affirm this. And, And that is that there is one life and the time that we have to make a decision for Christ or the time of our accountability for our decisions mm-hmm. is ends at our death, right? right. We have this, this one life. This is the, the time when we get to make the decisions or upon which we're going to be judged. And upon our death, and we recorded a couple of weeks ago, an episode about death and what that is and how Death is the separation of the human soul from the human body. And at the time that we die, there is this term, the particular judgment, which means that 
each of us at the time of our death begin to inherit the consequences of our lives. Mm-hmm. And that, it's called a particular judgment because it's, it's general. I mean, it's particular to you. In other right. words, you know, if, 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 if I get hit by a bus on the way home tonight, right. then I will, I will be judged at the time of my death. And I will, as we said uh, a couple of weeks ago, I will then go to one of a couple of places and await the final judgment or the last judgment or mm-hmm. the general judgment when Christ returns and all the dead are raised and right. reunited with their bodies in the general resurrection, resurrection. And there will be the last and final judgment, which becomes permanent for all time. Okay. Right. That makes sense. So after our particular judgment, there is a period where our souls are beginning to experience what we will experience for eternity Mm -hmm. before our souls are reunited with our bodies in the resurrection and then our permanent or final destination is determined where we are uh, in a resurrected state and that's eternity. So that's the outline of the thing. And there are a couple of different destinations. So at the time of our death, and we can see this in biblical stories, like for example, Jesus tells the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. And Mm -hmm. if you remember this one, Lazarus is the poor beggar, and then there's the rich guy, Lazarus is outside the house. Hey man, can you you toss me a dinner roll or something? Right. The rich man's in there like Henry VIII, you know, chomping on, you know, turkey legs or something. And, um, and when they die, Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man goes to a place of of separation from God and torment. Or we have the story of the thief on the cross where, Mm -hmm. you know, he's repentant or acknowledges Christ and, and Christ says, tonight you will dine with me in paradise. So that's that notion of that particular judgment. Now, that's what the Catholic Church teaches. And I think we're going to do a couple of other episodes here where we talk about hell and heaven and purgatory and what those are. So I don't want to go too down, you know, right. down the path of exactly what heaven is and exactly right. what hell is and what purgatory is. But let's just stay on the topic of judgment. Now, a couple of things that you said in the setup there, uh, when you talked about the Protestant view, right. I, I would, once again, I would introduce some distinctions because okay. I have very orthodox Protestant friends. In other words, people who believe in the historic Christian faith who sometimes uh, give me feedback and say that sometimes I'm to generalize too much about Protestants. Of course, my response to them is, well, you kind of have to because Protestants are all over the board. Right. Where do I go to find the Protestant catechism? Where do I go to find the Protestant statement of faith for Protestantism? And this is kind of my pushback on them. And one of the things that drove me to Catholicism is I can pick up the catechism of the Catholic Church and I can read what it says, but Protestantism is this general category of compasses basically everything that's not Catholic and it's all over the board. And I can go from not only one denomination to another, but I can go to different, you know, uh, churches within a denomination and get all kinds of different teaching. Right. So there is some generalization that happens. But the point you made is, I think, valid in as much as because there's so much variety in Protestantism, it's fair for you to talk about what you heard and what you experienced. Right. 
right? Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, my good friend who may come to me and say, well, we don't say that in my church. I go, I know, but I guess Ed wasn't in your church. When the churches that he was in, that's what he heard. Right. So again, let's talk about the things that you've heard because there is a huge sort of swath of sort of, con- especially contemporary evangelicalism right. or American Protestantism uh, or Protestants in general uh, in the last hundred, couple hundred years. In, in which the notion of eternal security, so kind of once saved, always saved. Right. Okay, so a couple of different things. That's this 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 perseverance of the sa- saints or eternal security. That I, I can't lose my salvation. Right. That's one belief that runs through a sort of strain of Protestantism, and so th- that means that once I've accepted Jesus, no matter what I do, I'm in. Right. And I actually heard uh, a guy make the point once. He said, "Well, it's like you go to the carnival." And you know, when you go to the carnival, you get those little tickets that you can right. spend on hot dogs or prizes right. Right. or whatever, right? And he's like, well, some people, uh, you know, if I go out and I accept Jesus and then I live this really debauched life or I'm a serial killer or whatever, right. I'm in. It's just when I get there, I won't have as many, as many tickets oh, okay, to spend yeah. Yeah. As, as, as Ed did because he lived a better life, but we're all in. Uh, I think that's weird, but nevertheless, okay. So the issue of eternal security, the other one is that all I have to do is just accept Christ, okay? So these are the ideas you're reacting to. Let me tell you what the church teaches. Okay. And I want to be as clear about this as I possibly can. So dear listener, please listen to exactly what I say. The Catholic church teaches that the only thing that saves us, the only thing that saves us, is the death and resurrection of Christ. That we are saved only by grace that Christ died for our sins, rose again to make it possible for us to rise again in his resurrection, and that there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. Period. Full stop. The issue comes down to two things. One is accepting the gift, okay? Mm -hmm. Just because Christ has given us a gift doesn't mean that we have accepted the gift. We didn't earn the gift. We didn't buy the gift. We didn't buy the gift for ourselves. Jesus offers us the free gift of salvation, but we need to accept it. And what the Catholic Church teaches is that there are certain ways in which we accept that gift. And one of them is the Eucharist. Because the word Eucharist means thanksgiving. And the priest says in the Eucharistic prayer, uh, uh, you know, it, it is right and just, our duty and our salvation, to always and everywhere give us thanks. And this is our act of thanksgiving. So one of the ways that we accept the completely free gift of salvation is by stepping forward and, and, and taking his body and blood. So there are things like that, the sacraments and ways that we accept that gift. That doesn't mean that we earned it any more than if you give me a present and I accept the present that I bought the present or earned the present, but I did have to accept. Right. Is that clear? Yep. Okay. Second thing is there's a difference between salvation and sanctification. Right. Okay. Salvation is what earns us salvation, which our sins are forgiven. Sanctification is, the word sanctification means to become holy, uh, sanctified. It's the word where we get saints. And so once I have been given this 
gift of grace, I then have to develop that gift of grace. I have to work with that. I accept it and I do something with it. I mean, there's all kinds of analogies that have been given for this. Uh, you know, one is, uh, hey, uh, you're going to run the Boston Marathon or something like that. And Jesus gives you, he, in, 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 uh, he enters you in the marathon and pays your right. registration fee and gives you the shoes and the clothes and the bib number and all that stuff and puts you on the starting line. But you still have to run the race uh, that he's put you there. Or another analogy is given you all the things that you need and now... He, you, from the human side, you take that gift and you develop it, um, that you can decide to take the gift. You know, imagine you gave somebody a, a, a present. Imagine you had a, a, a kid and on her, on her 16th birthday, you bought her a brand new car. You gave her the car and then she went and, you know, wrecked it or left it out, you know, right. and treated it badly and tore it up and didn't really make use of it. And that would be taking the gift and and doing that. So we are to take the gift of God and we are to work out our salvation, as Paul says, in a sense, by taking what he has given us, the grace he's given us, and developing that and trying to become holy. And, and again, that doesn't earn us salvation. Okay? Right. Clear? All right. Now, what about judgment? What am I judged on? Right? Right. So am I judged on how much I progressed in holiness? Am I judged on how many times I took the Eucharist? Am I judged on all of these things? Well, the only thing that can pay for sin is, is Christ's blood. Again, though, I need to accept that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we have the sacrament of confession and reconciliation in which I say, all right, I'm, in a, I, I, I'm saved, but I, I went out yesterday and I did a bad thing. Right. Right. And I, I willfully, I willfully right. turned aside from God, did something that I knew was wrong and I willfully did it. So the thing is, is that I can't earn my way back. I can't do one bad thing yesterday and sort of pay for it by being doing two or three good things today right. to balance it out. Not how it works. It's not how it works. But what I can do is go back to the cross. I can go back to Christ. So I go to confession and, and, I, and, I, and I share with the Lord what I have done and I repent. And the priest acting in the person of Christ gives mm -hmm. me absolution. So essentially what I've done is gone back to Christ and said, I'm sorry for this thing that I've done and I want to turn back to you. Right? Right. And so, so and it's just an important distinction that I think Protestants misunderstand. As Catholics, we aren't earning our way by doing these things, but what we are is appropriating or receiving or making right. the gift of Christ real in our lives. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, your, your friend who had the mother or whatnot yeah. who died, and she said, you know, my heart is dark. Right. You know, it's touching because what we would call that in Catholicism is an examination of conscience. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we're encouraged to not only do an examination of conscience before we go to confession, but we really, as part of our night prayers, as we lay ourselves down or when you wake yourself in the morning, right. is to do an examination of conscience. How did I do today? Right? Did I, did I willfully turn away from the Lord? Did, and by exam, and you don't, and, and, and the point of that story, as I took it, was that a lot of people don't know. Right. You know, I mean, they can be right. looking at the outside of my life and not know what's going right. on in the inside. And, and that dear woman, in a sense, had examined her conscience. Yes. And knew that she had 
things that she needed to take care of for the Lord. Where I think you could take that story in the wrong direction is to say, well, she looked at herself and knew that there are things in her heart that weren't right. And so she's just, you know, lost or something like that, or there's nothing she can do, or does she have to do more good things or does she have to make her heart better? And, and that's not it. I mean, as Catholics, what we believe is we turn to the Lord and, and right. we confess the things in our heart. That is, again, the confession. And so and as I go into the confessional, I mean, I think non-Catholics may look at it and say, well, you go into the confessional and just say, hey, I stole, I, you know, I stole a car yet. I committed grand right. theft auto right. yesterday. Right. It's like, well, no, I may go in and say, you know, yesterday in my heart, Right. Some things I, 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 I really hated a person yesterday. Right. I, I really, you know, felt things or there were things internally that I know were sinful. I, and so the, the priest in the confessional listens and, and absolves me of that. If I, if I have a, a firm uh, purpose, a firm amendment to, to turn from that right. and ask genuinely in repentance and ask for forgiveness. So in the case of that woman, like the case of all of us, this is where as, as a Catholic, you would want the priest to come to my, right. as I'm passing and allow me to make a last good confession and say, Lord, as I look back at my life, these are the things that I'm genuinely repentant for. And I ask for the cleansing blood of Jesus to wash me of these things and hear the absolution of the priest and know not that I fixed myself, not that I compensated for the bad things in my heart by right. donating a million dollars to the, you know, right you know, children's fund or whatever. Uh, but knowing that I turned to the Lord and repented mm-hmm. and that he forgave me out of the treasury of merit that he earned on the cross, that that was, that, that, that he applied that to my account. I could see that if you did not live a life examining your conscience, that you could get to the point where you would honestly, that you had deceived yourself enough that you didn't think you were doing anything wrong. Well, I think that's the thing is that if you have a warped conscience, and I think that's one of the things that really, you know, is troubling about where we are as a culture, because as we have turned away from sort of at least maybe not everybody was a Christian or whatever, but at least we had a sort of a a Christian set of values. People knew right from wrong. Right. And now we live in a culture where we haven't taught right from wrong. We have relativistic values and everything right. else. And, and our, our value set is, is goofed up. So people don't even, a lot of times aren't even aware or don't even have any kind of standard or any, any sort of sense of, uh, of being able to examine their conscience because their conscience has been malformed or unformed or deformed. Right. And so when I'm not even aware, you know, when I was a Calvinist, we were always taught um, this old Calvinist thing about how the the law, meaning the Ten Commandments or whatever, the Old Testament law, was the teacher of sin. That mm, God yeah. gave it. You could never live up to it. You know, it was never possible for you to fulfill all the commandments. But I would not have known right. that these things were sinful unless, in a sense, God gave me the, the yardstick to measure right. myself against. And so by looking at the law, by examining and when I do my examination of conscience at the end of the day or before I go into the confessional, one of the ways that you can do that, one of the ways I occasionally do it is I, as I review the Ten Commandments or whatever, right. and I go down and I go, how, how have I done with respect to these, either in sins of commission right. or omission or right. sins of the heart? 
And by going using that in a sense as a as a yardstick, I can measure where I am. And that f- helps me form my conscience and know what kind of things I need to confess right. and be absolved for. So one of the problems is that you can have this malformed conscience. And I think a lot of times today that the story that I, I liked, you know, or I liked your story there because this, this dear woman had a properly formed conscience right. and her, her loved ones, her kids, of course, wanted to say, Hey mom, you know, or grandma right. or whatever, you know, you're a great person. And of course those are and something too, that there's a sort of kindness or charity. You certainly want to, wouldn't want to send your mom or your grandma's deathbed and say, you're right. You really were a, right. you know, a nasty old battle ax. Right. Like who's going to say that, you know? Um, and, and so there's probably some affection and sentiment and charity right. there to say, no, but this person has an honest self-appraisal and has that examination of conscience. Where I think we end up today, you know, you, you started that story, uh, started with the story of uh, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the, the Titanic movie, right. where at the end, it's like, whatever you've done, you know, they're all going to lift you on their shoulders and sing, he's a jolly good fellow, right. or whatever, for, for whatever I've done in life, which be, kind of becomes malformed. I don't, I don't know that what I'm, you know, I need to have some honest self-appraisal. And, and so I am going to be judged. Now, here's the question. Can I be judged on things if I was unaware that what I did was wrong? Right. Right? Yeah. So the way that this always used to be uh, expressed was, what about the little kids in Mongolia, you know, 1,500 years ago right. who never knew? Of course, now I have to say, what about somebody who just grows up in the school system, <laughs> right. right? The public school system or whatever in America and is told from the first time they walk into preschool is fed a whole list of, of false values. And, and they've been told that a lot of things that are intrinsically morally evil, that evil has been called good. Right. Now, what if happens when a person grows up in that where, again, evil has been called good? Um, things that are intrinsically wrong, that's not been pointed out. And, and my conscience has never been formed. Am I culpable? Right. Right? Uh, am I, and the church teaches that God's mercy is greater than our sin. Mm-hmm. I think that's always the thing to remember is no matter what you've done, no matter how black you think your heart is, right. no matter how terrible the things you think you've done, God's mercy is bigger than that. And it's capable of washing all that away that there's, there's no sin that's so big that the grace of Christ can't, right. can't cleanse it. Um, you know, occasionally I, when I was, a, especially when I was a, a student, you know, I used to do student college ministries and, you know, the kind of the thing would always come out. So what's the, what's the unforgivable sin, you know, like, right. Um, Cause Jesus makes a mention at one point about the right. unforgivable sin and, and have I, how do I know if I've committed the unforgivable sin? And I used to say, if you're worried about having committed the unforgivable sin, then you right. haven't. Then you haven't, it. yeah. Haven't because it's blasphemy and it's the Holy Spirit. It's calling evil good. It's rejecting God's authority in your life and reject, in a sense, a final rejection of God right. that God has no jurisdiction in my life. But if, you're, if your conscience is bothering you and you're worried that you've done something wrong, then there's nothing that you've not done that the blood of Christ isn't capable of washing you. Right. But that's where... Again, you need to appropriate that in your right. life. You need to you need to accept it. You need to uh, step up and cooperate, in a sense, cooperate mm-hmm. with God by accepting it and examining your conscience and making that firm amendment to change and walking forward. And when you stumble, 
right? And right. grow in holiness. And when you stumble, turn back. So at a certain point, we can face judgment with confidence, knowing that we have trusted the Lord, mm-hmm. we've accepted his salvation, we have taken advantage of his sacraments, and we have, as we said in that last uh, time we talked about this, that, that we have sort of died in friendship with God and right. had that good death. But we will face judgment. And there are ways in which we are going to have thing, you know, stuff that still has to be worked out. So I think we'll do a, a subsequent one here about heaven, hell, and purgatory. Right. Because this is where the, the, the Catholic Church introduces what I think is a super important doctrine and a super important nuance here. So what about someone, we can all say, well, okay, what if you're totally evil and you've totally rejected God and everything else and blah, right. blah, blah. Okay. All right. Well, you're going to hell. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, like, well, we, we can, and when we talk about hell, we'll talk about that. Right. I was kind of being facetious there, but. But what about the person who says, well, uh, I accepted Christ and I've lived a really imperfect life right. and I've died, um, I've died with a lot, knowing that I have a lot of dark places in my heart, but I have right. trusted God. But, and so that's where the doctrine of purgatory comes in, which is the doctrine of purification, that you can have a soul that has accepted grace. Okay. And the grace of Christ has been given. And so that soul is ultimately going to be saved. But that soul is also not in a state of purification or holiness. And so what happens when you die? Uh, and, you know, I think you and I talked about this once before, about someone who's like, I've accepted Jesus, but I'm still a total mess. Right. Well, does God just say, well, it doesn't really matter? Because I think you made this point when we were talking about this once before. So then it, does it demotivate you to do anything, right? right if I, yeah, If exactly. I just get to advance to go, right? If I guess get to jump ahead on the game board, then why bother right. in this life? If I accept Jesus and I die with full of a bunch of, you know, messes and, that I've made in my life, but he just sort of leaps me forward. I think what it is is to realize, and, and I can give the, when we talk about this in another episode, a little scriptural support for that, but that God says that there is a purification where we have to wash our robes. And so the idea there is that for some people, our judgment is that there is a period of purification. Mm -hmm. Now, whether that's temporal in the sense of time, you think of it in terms of time, that's what we get into a talk about whether maybe time is sort of a metaphor for us to think about it. Like, am I going to spend a thousand years in purgatory or 10 minutes? Maybe that's not right. exactly the right way to think about this, right. sort of a metaphor, but there is stuff that needs to be worked out. Right. Um, and, it, and it gives us the opportunity to work that stuff out in our lives before judgment or, or after. But the reality is, is that we are going to be judged. And, I, you know, I, I feel like we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, because you've talked about uh, the Protestant notion that if all I have to do is say, you know, I believe in Jesus and I, you know, I've got a free pass. But there's another thing that's floating around and it's become especially popular in the last 50, 60 years. And, you know, we could do a whole episode on it, but we won't right now. And that's the notion of sort of universal salvation yeah. or universalism. The notion that, you know, all dogs go to heaven and right. all people do. All things go to heaven. and it has some ancient roots. People who are proponents of this view like to point to a few ancient writers, like, for example, the ancient writer Origen, who 
said some things that made you think he was open to this idea or maybe kind of believed it or whatever. Uh, and there were a, there were a couple of other, uh, you know, writers over the centuries who said some things about it, but the church has condemned it, you know, throughout history and taught that this notion of universalism, that in the end, everyone right. and everything gets to heaven is, is a heresy. Uh, or at least everything, or, or what, there is no ju- there is no final judgment. All things, there is no hell, there is no final judgment. Whatever we, we can get into that, or, or that kind of came down to recently in the last say twenty thirty years is this whole love wins movement. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about the whole love wins thing is how it decimates the Christian life. So the notion, and when you look at the writers or the people or the churches that that go down this route, what it immediately does is, is guts the moral theology of the church. Right. And, and in particular, it does that. So when you talk to the love wins crowd, they say, well, in the end, love wins, God loves everybody, um, and God's going to make it work out for everybody. Well, then there's no point in moral right. theology because right. it doesn't matter what you do. And so the almost like, as soon as someone goes down the love wins thing, like within you can count like, you know, T minus nine, 10, you right, know, 10, yeah, yeah. nine, eight, seven seconds. Within 10 seconds, it's uh, then all of a sudden, all of these moral theological, particularly for us today, it's um, sexual morality yeah. goes out the window. Um, what's interesting about that, that sort of progressive viewpoint is it isn't that, right? So Christianity is always taught that the Catholic church, at least, it's always taught that they're intrinsically moral. Uh, evils. There's certain things that are just bad, right? They're just evil just because they are. Right. Like they intrinsically are. There's no, so, you know, um, you know, rape is intrinsically right. immoral. A child, child rape is intrinsically morally evil. Right. right. There's no circumstances under which it's. Right. And, and what's interesting with the love win crowd, love wins crowd is what happens is they do away the, with the list of traditional Christian moral, you know, theologies, especially with um, sexual revolution, but would they just erect a new set of mm. moral evils, right? So then it's, it's racism, it's exclusion of uh, LGBTQ people, it's, um, you know, not recycling your right. trash or <laughs> right. whatever. It's just this other set of things that are intrinsically right. evil. Uh, but really, I think the Love Wins crowd quickly runs to it doesn't matter what religion you are because all religions get there. So it guts, what it does is it guts Christian missions. There's no yeah. point in sharing the gospel or spreading right. the gospel or doing missions because no matter what religion is, somebody is, they're going to get there. And there's no point in pressing on moral theology, at least traditional sexual moral theology, because everyone's going to get in. The only people who aren't going to get in are people who pollute the environment and, right. you know, and right and are racist or whatever. And I'm not trying to be too flippant, right? Right. But, but the love wins thing has struck me, I mean, at two levels. One is it's three levels, maybe. Number one, it's, I think, biblically and doctrinally unsound. Right. It's historically um, unsound in terms of the historic teaching of the church for 2,000 years. And three, it's practically unsound. Because it practically guts any sense of the of the missionary nature of the gospel and guts moral theology. So 
you know, the thing is we are going to face judgment, but God in his judgment is merciful. And God in his judgment, um, uh, and we can hope and always pray for mercy. Right. Right. For people. I, you know, the question is, uh, one of the other questions is, is when it comes to judgment like this is, what about particularly pe- particular people? So you're talking about that woman who passed and, you know, we've both had people where we go, wow, this guy seems like he never went to church and he did a lot of bad things. And surely are you trying to say that when God judged him and, you know, sent him to hell. And I think that what we want to be was very careful with our words. I think what you'd say is, yes, I believe that God judged him. Right. He judges all of us. He will be judged. I will be judged. You will be judged. Right. Can't escape judgment. Uh, And there is a hell. And, uh, and, and we know that God sends people there, but who he sends there or how many, uh, we are very careful about assigning that to particular people because we hope. So think of this. I know we both had people close to us pass. Yep. And I think about some people that have, I've known very well or loved or family members or whatever, and they pass and, and you say, well, are and maybe they didn't go to church or they didn't believe in Jesus. And you say, are, and if someone says to me, when they died, did they go to hell? And what I would say is, I hope not. Right. I'm praying not. I pray for their soul. And then I, I would keep my mouth shut. I know that God is infinitely merciful, but I also know that he's infinitely just. And justice goes both ways. Mm-hmm. And I also know that God's mercy extends as far as it can. God will be as merciful as he possibly can without violating the free will of a person. Right. Because, because part of being a human person is having the capacity to reject God. Right. You know, you, you're talking about the love wins crowd. It seems like one of the tells in this thing is that you can't trick God, okay? Mm-hmm. You're not going to pull one over on him. You're not going, and, and saying that, you know, it, uh, uh, so I can see somebody trying to game the system then. Well, then, you know, I, what's the point of being moral right now? Uh, I think I'm just going to go and do all these things. And, you know, later on, love's going to win anyway. And that just makes a fool out of people, a fools out of people who are, who are trying to follow God and trying to do the right things. And, um, and then it also sort of makes a fool out of God. Like, Oh, he didn't think that through, did he? You know? Yeah. uh, I mean, that's probably a whole nother episode to really drill down on that thoroughly and fairly. But, but I do think, you know, use the word tell. I, I think there is sort of a tell because when I look at progressive theology, it, it doesn't do away with judge. It can be just as judgmental and, right. uh, and, and, and has a, its own sort of moral code. It's just different right. than historic Christianity. Yeah. And it erects a sort of new morality and a sort of new moral code and sort of a new standard. But look, I think that when it comes to these things, we should be as careful with our words as we can possibly be. And because there's nothing more serious than talking about these matters. God does judge us. He will judge us on our, 
our, the, the, our conditions and our actions, our choices. God is merciful, and his mercy extends as far as it can. But in the end, God gives us the capacity to reject him. Now, did somebody reject him with willfully, with knowledge, right. culpability? And these are mysteries of God's right. judgment that we can't always understand. But going back to the formed conscience thing, if, if you're thinking about that and you have any kind of a conscience at all, and, and Paul says in Romans 1 that the things that can be known about God uh, can right. be known from the general revelation. Right. right. Right? Like you don't need to sit in church every week to know that raping children is intrinsically morally right. evil. Right. There are certain things that are just, but, but Catholic Church calls them natural law, naturally yeah. revealed. This is an intrinsic moral evil. Right. And so our conscience, each of us as human beings, Paul says in Romans 1, we have no excuse for some of those things. There are other things that maybe we may not have been educated about. Um, you know, there's things that when people enter the Catholic Church, there's a, there's a process of catechesis mm-hmm. and moral catechesis, especially in a missionary culture. But yeah, I mean, judgment is real. Uh, hell is real. Uh, the possibility of going there is real. But so is God's mercy mm-hmm. uh, and his justice and his love. And he has made it possible for us to accept the free gift of salvation. Yeah, it's good stuff. All right. All right. Thanks, Ed. Yep. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.